But as the time of promise drew near with God and granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up in her own, as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was, a might, he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defeated, defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by His hand. But they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside and saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Amen. In the children's catechism this morning, we have the question number 19. Is there any way to escape punishment and be brought back into God's favor? The answer? Yes. God reconciles us to Himself by a Redeemer. Let's say that again. Yes. God reconciles us to Himself by a Redeemer. A Redeemer, one who delivers us. Amen. The children are dismissed to go to their class. We saw in chapter one, uh, as we went through that, that you know Israel was. Uh, in the land of Goshen, he was there by uh, Pharaoh's invitation and through Joseph's covering, uh, Joseph being a servant of Pharaoh and, and uh, becoming Pharaoh's number two man in the end of Genesis. And so Israel, during a famine that was going on, it was worse in Canaan than in Egypt, he comes to Goshen. Goshen was this beautiful, fer- you know, fertile land. And even during the uh, time of uh, a famine, it appears that there was it was still workable and 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 helped to provide, and so Pharaoh gives them the best land. It's it's east of the Nile River, uh, and and it goes uh, up to the Sinai area uh, as its uh, east border, and west border being the Nile River, and just a very fertile land, and so. Israel prospered there. And God blessed them. 
And they started with 70. And by the time we get to this point where we're going to be entering in this, a few hundred years has passed. 400 years and 430 years, I think they say. And uh, we have a nation of people. And Pharaoh looks at him and he says, wait, <laughs> these people are, are too you know, plentiful. There's too many of them. And they're not really Egyptians. They're foreigners. And this new Pharaoh looks at him and sees them as a threat. Again, that idea of what if a foreign country were to invade us? Whose side would they take? We can't take a risk. And so they started to do what basically is a form of genocide and he strived to eliminate the Hebrew nation as a threat by having all the male babies put to death. Midwives, as you recall, didn't support that. And Pharaoh's figured out uh, if, if they're not going to do this for me, then we'll take another method. And, it, and he said it to, to all Egyptians. In fact, I want to re- read again the end of chapter 1, just the last couple of verses, or the last verse. Pharaoh commanded all his people, all the Egyptians, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. His goal Letting the daughters live would be to blend the Hebrew people into the Egyptian people and eliminate the the male uh, children. And eliminate, within probably a a generation or less, he would have eliminated the Hebrew people as a threat. That's uh, where Israel is. They're under oppression. They've been brought into slavery. The killing of their sons. And I'm going to suggest to you, this was Satan's battle plan. Remember, I've talked before about the the scarlet thread running from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through into Revelation, all the way through the Scripture. And that is the the effect of, of God always pointing to a Redeemer who would ultimately be seen in Jesus Christ. And, and so, all this time you know, that he's, God is providing one who will deliver His people after a time of them walking away from the Lord. It's, uh, you can see how this could have happened. It's not said in Scripture clearly, but you have all of these people uh, in Egypt and prospering and, and, and basically sitting in what we would probably call the good life. And uh, while they still call themselves Hebrews and they still acknowledged Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the fathers of their faith and the father of their people, they I, would appear, based on some things that happened later on in Exodus, that they had become very familiar with the Egyptian form of worship and false gods and maybe even tolerant within their own ranks. Uh, we'll see it further down in Exodus, you know, the, the reaction of, of, of the Hebrew people as Moses is on Mount Sinai and building the golden calf and all of that. And so that was a reversion back. And plus, the number of times we'll hear as we go through Exodus 
if it only just left us in Egypt where we had our food and we were fine. But no, you brought us out here to starve or to, or, uh, or to die of thirst in this wilderness and, and we would have been better off with our leeks and cucumbers in, in Egypt. And so this constant reference back would tell us that the Hebrew people were conflicted at best uh, you might say, uh, in a sense of, of, of who they are as a people. And God is trying to separate them out of that at this point. But Satan is trying to ruin it. And by eliminating the Hebrew people, he would eliminate the, silver, the scarlet thread. I've often had people ask me, does Satan know God's plans? I think he does. I think that he is arrogant enough and sin in his nature, the father of sin, he thinks he can still win. And so he's willing to do the battle. Again, the end of chapter 1 was all of the uh, uh, Egypt cha- uh, charged uh, to kill the baby boys. And what that did was it turned all the Egyptian people that were also in the land of Goshen into spies. If you were an Egyptian person and you saw a boy who was at this point maybe you know, a few months old to one or two years old, you would say, oh, they missed one. And what would happen? Well, the, the soldiers would show up and take the child. And there's every indication from Josephus that that's exactly what happened. Now, Josephus isn't the Word of God, and it has its exceptions and exaggerations, so we don't want to be careful that we don't quote it like Scripture. But it appears that there's something to that effect. It turned the Egyptian people... And you notice how Moses put it and how it is here as it's written. All the Egyptians were now being held accountable to say, basically, if you see a child of, the, of, of this young age, they missed the, the call, and we need to do something about it. That takes us to chapter 2, and I'm just going to take this a couple of verses at a time. Chapter 2, starting with verse 1 of, of Exodus. Now a man from the house of Levi went and he took his wife, a Levite woman, and the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. The birth of Moses. We find that this chapter deals, by the way, based on what we read in, in uh, Acts chapter 7, deals with the first 40 years of Moses' life. By the way, what happened in Acts chapter 7, just to keep it in, in context for you, in Acts chapter 7, what we're having is the testimony of Stephen, who has been arrested, who is a believer, he was doing works and teaching for Christ, and the, 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 the Jewish council had him arrested and brought before them. And his testimony is the history of Israel and what he's doing is showing how God delivered, 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 delivered. And finally, he, the ultimate picture is Jesus Christ. So Stephen gives them a history lesson. And by the way, just, just, just to think about it, Stephen probably hadn't been to school in the sense of, of, of the Hebrew scholars and this type of thing. And yet here he was lecturing them of the history of the Hebrew people. And so this, he fills in some gaps for us and again, I am confident with all my heart that Peter is correct, that, that this is God's Word breathed out. 
And so what we have in Stefan's testimony is an accurate picture of what went on. So I'm using both Hebrews chapter 2 and Acts chapter 7, as well as a little shot from, from Hebrews 11, uh, uh, to help get this whole picture together. So the birth of Moses, his first 40, 40 years, it says he was a fine child. The idea of a fine child, you know, how are you going to interpret this? Well, the idea of this word fine child was exceptional child. It chose also the idea of fine child is a chosen child. It's possible that his mother saw him as something that God was going to use in a unique way. She might not have understood it all, but she saw the need to make sure he was safe and to do whatever she could to protect him. So we learn in verse three. You know, she hit. Well, verse two tells us she hid him for three months. At that point, she's not going to be able to keep him concealed forever. She can't just lock him in the closet, so to speak, and never let him out of the house. And so she's got to figure out a plan. And so she figures. It says in verse three, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of, of bulrushes and dubbed it with butumen and pitch. You got to, The first time you hear of this idea of butumen and pitch is back in Noah's ark where God delivered. I, I, just, I think it's an interesting tie-in is all. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Now the place where these reeds are located happens to be where the royalty of the pharaohs come and do the ritual washing. We know that by what happens next. Uh, first off, I, I grab verse 4. It says, And his sister, his sister's name is Miriam, we find out later, stood at a distance to know what would be done with him. In other words, she stood on guard. You know, make sure... I think she was there to, to, to make sure that the basket didn't drift, whatever was necessary, to keep it right where it was. Now, verse 5 shows us what comes next. Now, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. Pharaoh's daughter comes down to, to bathe and again, it's a ritual washing that, that the Egyptians did in the Nile. And, and the royalty had a particular spot that they used. And it appears that Moses' mother knew the place. It would be obvious because it would be a place where no Hebrew would be allowed to go. And again, we see here God's perfect timing. We're told in Galatians chapter 4, uh, and verse 4 about God's perfect timing in reference to the coming of Christ. And you think about it, the Hebrew people have been you know, crying out for some time, where's the Messiah? Where's the Messiah? They had a schedule in their mind that it needed to be here yesterday. You know, you ever get that urgency feeling where you know, things are not going well and, and, and somewhere I've missed something or, or I've missed a, a turn or something? You know, and, and you, 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 things kind of go into a negative mode. 
and a new normal enters into your life and, and you have to make all these adjustments. Well, that's, you know, it happens. And, and uh, so, you know, we have here this, this picture of, of, of Moses. He's in the river. He's placed among the reeds by the bank. And Moses' daughter comes down to bathe by the river. And I see God's orchestration here. His hand is all over this. His timing is perfect. And it's hard to accept that when tough things go the way you didn't plan. But here's God working. And what happens? She saw. Now, the, the she here, I believe, is, is Pharaoh's daughter. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant women and she took it. Okay, so she takes the basket, says that she opens it, and she saw the child. And behold, the child was crying. The baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, notice she knows he's one of the Hebrews, uh, Hebrews' children. How do you think she knew that? Josephus has an answer for this, but I... And I, I want to be careful that I don't be offensive here. He was circumcised, probably. Egyptians didn't do that. This was a unique symbol to the Hebrew people that set him apart. And uh, so she took pity on him. This idea of pity here is compassion. She had great empathy and compassion for him. And so, it says that you know she takes him, opens the basket, and 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 sees him crying. She has this compassion on him. She knows he's Hebrew. And then, verse seven, I see something extremely bold happen. Miriam, who's there at a distance watching, it says, "Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Whoa, a Hebrew." girl speaking to a Jewish royal person. You have this is this is totally out of bounds. The boldness here of Miriam I think is exceptional. You have to see again God's hand is in this. This isn't something a child would have done except for that I believe God was leading the way. Shall I go to call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? In other words, she's saying, I'm, I'm, would you like me to, to, to get a, a Hebrew woman? Now, Miriam is the sister of... of, 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 of <laughs> Moses here. And, and she shares the, the same mother. She's already forming a plan here. You want me to go get somebody to nurse him for you? I mean, it's not your child. You haven't been pregnant. You're not going to be able to do this. Should I get somebody, a Hebrew woman, to be your slave that way, you know? Moses' mom became his nanny as far as the culture is concerned.
verses 9 and 10. Pharaoh's daughter said, well, in verse 8, Pharaoh's daughter said, Go! And the girl went. She called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away. And he's speaking to Moses' mom now. Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Now the implication here because we actually know that Moses was raised in Pharaoh's court, is that Moses' mother became a part of the servant household in Pharaoh's home where his daughter is. I look at this and wonder, is Pharaoh scratching his head about this at all? But we learn from Josephus another fact. Pharaoh had no son. And this appears to be his only grandson. He's thinking, well, if we raise him in our ways, teach him our ways, I have an heir. So the boldness of Miriam, bring her mom into the picture. And we get to verse 10, the child grew up. And the idea of the growing up here became the small boy ready to learn. When we get to Moses, uh, chapter 11, one day Moses had grown up. It, it, it was done. Okay, What is in the gap here is what we fill in through Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, we get to verse 22, a picture, and Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. That could not have been done without Pharaoh's permission. And he was mighty in his words and his deeds. The idea of mighty tied to his words and his deeds, especially when you tie it mighty in his deeds, implies that he might have been a leader of warriors. A leader within the framework of, of the, the military structure of Pharaoh. But it says he's also mighty in his words. I, I just want to emphasize that because I want you to plant it in your memory. Because in just, well, next week, you're going to hear Moses say something that conflicts with this verse. So, I want you to, to just let that plant there. He was, he was mighty in his words and his deeds. He was educated in Pharaoh's court. Can you imagine what that lifestyle must have been like How many things do you think Moses really wanted and didn't get? I, I think he was... Now, at this point, because of what we know about the Pharaoh at this time, he's, he's possibly the heir to the throne. 
What? It doesn't mean that that doesn't change at some point, but at this point, he's looking pretty important. And he's got an amazing lifestyle. And then there's this radical change. When Moses was 40, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24 makes sure that we know that it was Moses' choice to leave Pharaoh's court and join his people. It says it was an act of faith. 11.24 Hebrews tells us Moses leaving the people of, of, of Egypt and, uh, to, to, to identify with the people of, of, of Israel leaving the Pharaoh's court to identify with the people of Israel, was an act of faith. If it's an act of faith, what does that tell you? Faith doesn't exist if there's no belief in God. Something has happened in Moses' life. Cecil Bill DeMille has all sorts of ideas about that, but the reality is something happened in Moses' life. I believe God got a hold of him. I don't think there was ever a time he didn't know that he was that he was a Hebrew man. Again, for obvious reasons. And uh, maybe it's something that he sat and contemplated, thought about, wondered. Look at all these Egyptian gods, and look at these people. These Hebrew people, you know, they only believe in one God. And then all of a sudden, at the age of 40, it says he's a man of faith. We don't know what transpired. We don't know exactly what happened. But what we do know is God's orchestration is here. God is working things in such a way. Have you ever thought about how this happens? God works things in such a way to draw us into His presence. And He will use all sorts of things. Things that we would call initially tragic may change the course of your family's history in bringing it into His presence. God doesn't miss a step. He doesn't miss a beat. And He's never late at just the right time. He allows things to come to fruition to accomplish His purpose. One day, when Moses was grown up, verse 11 of chapter 2 of Exodus, he went out to his people. He's identifying with them. His people. And looked on their burdens. The idea of looking on their burdens means, again, the thought of at least empathy, maybe compassion, uh, titled in there as well. And he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Catch it? One of his people. He looked this way 
and seeing no and, and that, and then seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid. We'll pick that up in a second. Moses, being raised in Pharaoh's court, now is identifying himself. He's gone out. He's looking at these people. He's seeing the, the misery they're going through, the oppression they're going through. And then he sees an Egyptian probably literally beat a Hebrew person in, in the sense of, of just mercilessly just beating him. And he intervenes. He kills the Egyptian. Question marks go around this you know, because people want to make sure that that we don't get you know, carried away here. He, he didn't probably mean to do it. It doesn't say that. I don't know. It's one of those questions we get to ask later. But the reality is that the Egyptian died. And, and so, what is happening here? Well, we get back into uh, chapter 7. It's, it's the, the fact that Moses was thinking he was to be the deliverer. If you go back and read again with verses I already read about Stephen's uh, testimony before the uh, Jewish council, he, he basically says that Moses figured that he was the, the guy to be doing this. And his thing was, is I can't, why, why aren't they excited about it? I'm here. What was happening? Moses was working on his time schedule. His thinking. Even though he'd become a man of faith, he was thinking, let's get this done. I'm a man of word and deeds. Let's go. But the Hebrew people didn't rally behind him. You see, it wasn't God's time. And Moses, really, he wasn't ready. There was more training that Moses needed than to just be a man of word and deeds. There was something missing. Acts 7.25 uses the word, He supposed that He was the person. That He was the man. He supposed. It doesn't say, and God called me to do. It says, I'm here. Now, he's acting on behalf of the Hebrew people. He's acting in the sense of, of what this faith has called him to in his mind. And it turns out he is the man called. It's just not the right time. And Moses, your education isn't finished. God has a way of taking us through things to where our testimony and our witness changes, grows, and matures. By the way, did you catch the phrase? He looked this way and that. What was he making sure? There was no interference. He was acting in his own strength. Well, Pharaoh finds out about this. Obviously, it was no secret. And so it says, when Pharaoh heard of it, 
verse 15 of chapter 2, he says, I sought to, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. What this tells us, because Moses, because Pharaoh is ready to kill him, is two things. Maybe there's an heir to the throne that's come into the picture since then, since the early part of this. Secondly, is that Pharaoh's really changed his mind about this young man. And he doesn't trust him. So, Moses leads and he goes to Midian. I don't know what you know about Midian, but what you're talking about is a wilderness. Moses went from living in Pharaoh's court to living with herdsmen, shepherds, rural people living in tents. Does this sound familiar to you at all? Have you seen anybody else go through this same transition from a major city and living the lifestyle of, of, of what would be considered the, the top of the, of the chain as far as the world at that time is concerned and now all of a sudden in, in the opposite, complete different direction? This is what happened to Abraham. God called him out of the, the city of Ur, remember? You see, God sometimes has to radically change our environment and everything around it in order to really get our attention for a purpose He is calling us for. And that's what He did for Moses. He takes Moses to Midian. The nomadic people. In fact, they didn't even live in one place for a long period of time. They moved around. Now God's training begins. He's had the Egyptian training. Now God's training begins. Chapter 2, verses 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water, uh, to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. Moses is got a nature of a hero here. And when they came home to their father, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us. Catch that? He's already getting that title, a deliverer. He delivered us. He delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, notice, by the way, the daughters are doing the shepherding. What does that tell you about Reuel? No son. Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may uh, eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man and gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and called his name Gershom. For he had said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Gershom meaning someone who wanders or, or a sojourner. Moses doesn't consider himself a Midianite. He sees himself as in a foreign land. He's not near his people and he's not in Pharaoh's court. Not that he would want to go back to that, but he, would, he, he knows who he is and he feels, I still think he feels that there is a call on him. He doesn't know what to do with it though. 
He's in a foreign land. Now just a side note to finish this out in chapter 2. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. You get another new pharaoh. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning and God remembered His covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. What did He know? They're ready. It's time. Now I can take them out of the land of Egypt. Look at this picture. Four times in this couple of verses. God heard. God remembered. And God saw. And God knew. I believe what he knew was the time is right. At the right time, God is going to move. He says it's time. What changed the circumstances? I really believe it's, it, you have to kind of read between the lines here. But God's people, the people of Israel, cried out to God. The, this is the only time we see this in, uh, up to this point. They cried out to God. They were desperate. Sometimes God allows us to be in desperate circumstances in order to get our attention. And they cried out to God. And God heard, remembered His promises. He saw their need. And he knew the time is now. They cried out for a rescue from slavery to Egypt and they came to God in their prayers. What they did was they returned to the basics of their faith. We need the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we also need the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're in a constant battle in this world. The picture here for us as we look back to it is to see Egypt as a picture. That's the world. Corrupt and fallen and going every which way in their faith and their belief systems. This person believes in this kind of animal. This person. Look at, 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 at Romans uh, in the very beginning. Uh, chapter 1, it says, There were the people that would, uh, in verse 18, suppressing the truth. The people of, 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 of ungodliness are suppressing the truth. That would be what would be the common norm in, in Egypt. No, you don't worship that Hebrew God. You worship our gods. And they had a God for everything. They had a God for the Nile. They had a, a God for the wind. They had, you know, they had gods for everything. And animals were part of their worship as well. And it says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. They should have known, in other words. 
for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In other words, God is revealing himself to the very nature of things around us. We should be amazed at what God has done. And you know, I had a person tell me just this this last week. He had no idea. A person, sometimes people haven't traveled very far in their lives. He got into a, a he had to be in Southern California. He'd never been in a place where there weren't trees. He had no idea. He came home and he saw the redwoods for the first time. That's the way he put it. He said, I saw them for the first time. He said, they're an amazing thing. We should be amazed at what God has done. And that's what God says, I've revealed Myself to you uh, ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Couldn't tag Egypt better. Makes me think again in Romans chapter 7, the end of the chapter where all of a sudden you come to realize, I'm in a battle with my flesh and the flesh seems to be winning. But this isn't what God wants. Your faith is developing. I know there's a God This isn't what He wants. Wretched man. It says very clearly, wretched man that I am, what am I going to do? I need God. His plan. His deliverance. God's plan before the foundation of the world. I need His deliverance. That's ultimately what the scarlet thread has been pulling all the way through to get us to the point where we say, God, I need Your deliverance. And it's through Jesus Christ and the blood of Christ. Sacrificed once and for all at the cross where the words, it is finished. It is done. It is complete. And the end result is, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That's who we are. God wants to bring us back to that point as often as we will allow. And if we won't allow or we fight it or we just get content, He will shake things up in order to get our attention. So that we will rest in the confidence of who God is. Not in my own strength, but His strength. You see what was happening to Moses? You know, He was working in His own strength. Now God is prepared to change His life in such a way that God can use him for the purpose that he was born for. I've talked to people who walked with Christ for a lifetime. And the final use of their life 
didn't happen until the finish of their life. And all of a sudden, their family, their children and grandchildren saw their father and their grandfather clearly for the first time and understood that he was a man of faith and the things of the world were not as important to him. They could never figure that out. And all of a sudden they understood. And through his end of his life, his children and his grandchildren's eyes were opened to what it is to be a person of faith. God doesn't waste a thing. doesn't waste anything in our lives. He uses it all to cause us to become who He wants us to be, who we need to be, who we will be ultimately and and be complete so that we can be that person in Romans chapter 8. There's no condemnation. doesn't mean we're free of sin. I come back to a wretched man that I am. I, I, I know I'm full of sin. I know that I have sinned and I sin daily. But I also know that God has called me. He put a, 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 a seed of faith in me. And He nurtured it through some amazing things. And a, a series of experiences of highs and lows. That I would be a man of confidence and faith. And that I could comfortably rest with those words. I rest under the, the truth. There is no condemnation. In the end of Romans 8, nothing can separate me from my God, from my Lord. I believe in the work He did on the cross and it's finished. Every time we take communion, we celebrate that. We're told to examine our hearts, but we're also told to, to look at this and what it means. Is He came in the flesh and sacrificed Himself. He emptied Himself and became flesh. Even a a man, even a servant to men. Even a servant to the point of the cross. Philippians chapter 2. He tells us that the the bread represents the reality that He came in the flesh. The cup, the, the, the fruit of the vine represents His blood shed for us. They are symbolic of what He has done. But the awesome part of this is He says, I'm not going to do this again. He's talking to the disciples, but He's talking to us through them. I won't do this again until we're all together at a marriage feast when we celebrate eternity together. So every time we take communion, we're celebrating what He's done, what He is doing, and what He is going to do. That's why it's a table of thanksgiving. As we sing our communion song, I'd ask Brad to come back up and lead us in that and invite you to come up and, and share in communion. Uh, we'll come up and pick up the emblems yourself. There's the packets on this side and there's the cup and the bread on this side, whichever you're most comfortable using. And uh, hold it until we've all been served and we'll share it together. This next song, as you.
come up to get your cup when you return. Use it as an opportunity to do as Paul instructed to examine yourself and uh, spend some time talking to God about uh, things that may be brought up or that you need to confess. And uh, it'll also be a time to be able to exalt him for what he has done for us, the, the gift that he has given us. So let's stand together and we'll sing. Sorry I don't have the other mic on because my hat tied on me, but uh, I'll try to speak loud. <coughs>
book of Matthew. Jesus sharing the what's considered the Last Supper. He gives them the picture of what we share right now in communion. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, He broke it and He gave it to the disciples and He said, Take, eat. This is My body. Let's share the bread. He took a cup and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them saying, Drink it all of you for this is My blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's share finishes after they've shared the bread and the cup. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Amen. Father, we thank You for the opportunity to share. The blessing of communion reminds us of who You are, what You have done, and then fills us with the hope of what is yet to come. We look forward to that day where we share this together as we enter into our eternal life with You. It's an amazing thing to think of, Lord. We already have eternal life. It's a promise of Yours. And so we rest in that. And yet it's more to come. Ultimately, to see You face to face. We join Paul with the thought, Maranatha, come soon, Lord Jesus. Not because we're anxious so much as, as we are just wanting to be with You forever. We worship You. We praise You. We thank You for Your Word that gives us insight as to who You are, what You have done. And, and, and Lord, we just thank You for Your never giving up on us. Again, we worship You. We praise You. Cause us to leave today that we might be a testimony of Your mercy, Your love, Your grace, Your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, Amen. Would you stand as we close, please? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Have a wonderful rest of the day.